This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the surprising science of how buildings shape our behaviour, health and happiness. With Emily Anthus and her new book, The Great Indoors. Emily Anthus is an award-winning science journalist and author. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Wired, Nature, Slate, Bloomberg Business Week, Scientific American, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe and other publications. Her previous book, Frankenstein's Cat, which you may remember we talked about on Little Atoms back in 2013, was long listed for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. And Emily's latest book we're going to talk about today is The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behaviour, Health and Happiness. Emily, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks, it's great to be back. First of all, tell us what the idea behind The Great Indoors is then. Well, the premise is that, you know, we all spend large chunks of our lives indoors, even before right the now. <laughs> Yes, but even before the pandemic and these stay at home orders, you know, North Americans and Europeans, um, the statistic you often hear is spend roughly 90% of their lives indoors. So, you know, that's the overwhelming majority of our lives. And so we're very familiar with these environments. But I don't think we often think about them really critically or think about how they affect our lives. You know, we think about the outdoor world and nature as being rich and complex and fascinating. And I came to understand the indoor environment as being equally rich and complex and fascinating and wanted to sort of prompt people to start thinking about it a little more critically and appreciating the influence it has on our lives. And you admit early on in the book to be a particularly an indoor person yourself. Yes, I am a, a bit indoorsy, which uh, I happily admit. <laughs> um, so in the first chapter of the book, then you talk about literally ecology of in our homes, and, and that's the sort of colonies of um, microbes and bacteria that I guess we're all aware of there. We just most of the time like to ignore it. Yeah, I mean, and this is really sort of the most literal way in which, you know, when I began thinking of buildings as sort of rich landscapes and ecosystems, you know, that's literally true. There are ecosystems in our building and it's largely these microbes, but bigger life as well. You know, there are all sorts of insects and arthropod life in our homes that, you know, we might see once in a while, but we don't really typically think about. And in the case of microbes, of course, we're rarely seeing them at all. And uh, these microbes have a few different sources. So some of them are actually living in our homes. You know, you might have mold that lives under the sink or on your shower curtain or, you know, bacteria that colonizes the, the food in your kitchen. Some of it is actually coming from us. So we humans, as well as our pets, have microbiomes and we sort of are constantly shedding the microbes we carry into the environments around us, including our homes. Um, and then some of it's just sort of drifts in or floats in from outdoors. You know, if you have a window open or when you come through the door, you might bring some outdoor microbes in with you. But as a result, the microbes in our homes tend to be even more diverse than what you might find outside because you have the outdoor microbes coming in, but then also all the human-associated microbial life that, that we're adding to these environments. But they're indeed more diverse, but also more specific 
to individuals as well. I was fascinated to discover that scientists can almost tell who has been in a room by studying the the microbes that have been left behind. Yeah, they did a really interesting study where they studied families that moved homes and they found that within 24 hours of moving into a new home, the unique microbes that sort of lived on the family had overtaken and completely sort of colonized and dominated the new home. And then beyond that, each individual in the family has their own unique microbiome. And they could tell maybe dad's spending the most time in the kitchen and they could see his microbial signature there while the kid is spending more time in the playroom and they could spend see that child's microbial signature there. So they could sort of begin to trace people's movements and use patterns in the homes just by looking at their microbes. Um, We're going to move on next to to look at the design of hospitals, but staying with microbes in that area for the moment, obviously, you know, we're all aware of the sort of concern of like superbugs and things in hospitals. But what you've just described about how when people are moving home, how a, a family's microbiome will replace the people who have left very rapidly, the same thing happens when you check into a into a hospital room, doesn't it? It does. And so it's, you know, the same process happens in all sorts of buildings, but obviously in hospitals, it's a bit higher stakes, both because you have a lot of people coming in who might have, you know, dangerous pathogens in their bodies. And then you also have people that might have compromised immune systems or have open wounds. So you both have more dangerous microbes being shed and you have more vulnerable people who might pick up those microbes. So exactly when you check into an inpatient room, you know, initially there might be traces of the previous occupant's bacteria there and they sort of get picked up by the patient, but pretty quickly within a day or so, the flow of microbes reverses. And so the new patient begins shedding their microbes into the environment, which will then be left there for the subsequent patient. So I sort of describe it as, you know, a game of microbial telephone where everyone's passing on traces of their microbes to the people that come after them. And you go on to talk about how, I mean, different hospitals, the design of hospitals can have a specific effect on people's chances of of recovering from certain illnesses. Again, we would often think about this as being related to something like, you know, microbes like hygiene, superbugs mm-hmm. again. However, there's there's much more to it than that. And I mean, even things like the amount of sunlight can have an effect, can't it? Yeah. And so there's real quantitative evidence and fairly compelling evidence. The things you might think of as just sort of nice perks, like a big window in your hospital room that provides lots of daylight and maybe overlooks a garden or some sort of natural scenery, that might just seem like a nice luxury, but it can have real benefits for patient recovery. There are studies that show that you know patients who look out onto natural scenery use fewer doses of super heavy-duty painkillers. They are less stressed. They are even, in some cases, discharged from the hospital a day sooner. So these sort Sorts of what might seem like, um, you know, sort of soft factors can have a real effect on, on patient healing. 
In the book, you look at a study, you, you go and sort of visit a study which is to redesign an OR, like an, an operating theatre. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research on hospital design that's really focused on patient rooms um, sort of over the last few decades. What's newer is looking at some of the other sort of more technical spaces. And this is a project to look at, you know, can we design operating rooms that are better for staff, so, you know, maybe more comfortable and a better place to work, but also better for patients. So are there design factors that we can rethink that might minimize medical errors or treatment delays or things of that nature? And so this research team was based at Clemson University in South Carolina, and they started really from scratch by just observing a lot of surgeries in existing operating rooms and sort of charting problems and hiccups and things that went wrong and sort of figuring out how they might be able to redesign or tweak the environment to eliminate those sorts of problems and hiccups. And then extrapolating that out from the hospital itself to the city that the hospital is based in, let's talk about how the design of cities can have detrimental effects on people's health and well-being as well. And, And you look at New York in particular... Yeah, so there's when you start thinking about public health, there's actually a, a long and rich history of design playing a role in public health campaigns. And I guess one of the most prominent examples is sort of the sanitation revolution or sanitary reform that, that took place in the, the 19th century. It happened in New York, it happened in, in London, it happened in a, a lot of the world's cities. But at the time, infectious disease was a huge problem in cities. You had things like tuberculosis, cholera, yellow fever. And also, it was not a coincidence that a lot of these cities were just absolutely filthy. Here in New York, you know, there were no real sewers at the time. People would just sort of pour their refuse and sewage just directly out on the street. A lot of people, especially the poor residents of the city, lived in these tenement houses, which were extremely cramped. You know, it might be 10 people to a small apartment, uh, poor ventilation, no windows. And the city began cleaning up its act in the second half of the 19th century. It developed a department of sanitation, which actually cleaned the streets. It mandated that tenements, you know, had to have a certain yard size, that they all had to have windows to the outdoors, that you couldn't cram a ton of these buildings on a single small lot, began to mandate running water and interior bathrooms. And these kinds of reforms led to a dramatic drop in the incidence of infectious disease. And this was before things like vaccines and antibiotics, which were obviously really important components in vanquishing these diseases. But Really, the solution started with the built environment and and by improving the built environment. Um, And in this chapter, you also look at um, innovations in the design of schools and how you know they can obviously help their their pupils. Tell me about there's one particular school that you visited. Yeah, so I visited a school in rural Virginia that has sort of embraced a philosophy that's now sometimes known as active design, and the idea is to create an environment that sort of encourages or some people say nudges people to make healthier choices, not by saying you must walk 10 miles a day, but maybe by creating really appealing walking paths that make people want to move their bodies more. So in this school, they did all sorts of creative things. They developed what they called learning streets, which were these sort of long hallways that had attractive 
sort of so-called movement temptations in them. So, you know, play equipment that kids could crawl on or colorful stools that wiggled so that they could play around on. They put tracks, animal tracks or footprints in the floor to sort of make walking fun in this school. What else did they do? Oh, they put windows in the gyms so kids walking by could see their peers and their friends playing in the gym and sort of making movement seem appealing and fun and a natural part of the day. Uh, they also embrace the power of stairs, which is a, a common technique. So kids who take the stairs more are getting more activity and they have these big, appealing, bright staircases in the central lobby with superhero decals posted above them. And the idea is to sort of get kids to think that going up and down the stairs can be fun and a natural part of the daily routine. Yeah, let's, I'd, I'd like to talk more about stairs as well, because, you know, beyond the school years, obviously, using the stairs, encouraging people to use the stairs in buildings, if they are indeed able to use the stairs, of course, because not everybody is, mm -hmm. is, you know, a cheap and easy way of, of getting people to be healthier without really having to think about it too much. How, are, how is that sort of being incorporated into the, into the design of buildings? Yeah, well, so if you think about the default, like in most commercial buildings or high rises or office buildings, you know, you walk in and it's sort of this gleaming lobby with the elevators front and center. And if you can even find the stairs, because it's not always obvious where they are, they're often behind this fire door that's very heavy and, you know, maybe it's dark and it, it's not really appealing to take the stairs. And so the idea is to sort of flip that script and make the stairs seem incredibly appealing, put them front and center to make it seem like they're the default choice. And there are a lot of ways to do this from increasing the width of the stairwell. So there's studies that show that wider stairs are, people are more likely to use them when the stairs are wider. There are more aesthetic choices. So, you know, there's a housing development I talked about in the Bronx that hung art in the stairwells and even played music in it to make it pleasant to walk up and down the stairs. And then, you know, basics like making them convenient and visible and prominent all can encourage people to take the stairs more. Um, you did mention, though, and I, I want to reiterate your point about how this has to be balanced with accessibility. There are people that need to take the elevators. And so I'm not encouraging designers to do away with elevators or to make them harder to access. Um, it's really important that people that need access can still take the elevator easily. But by making stairs prominent and appealing, uh, you can encourage people that can take them to do so. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Emily Anthes and we're talking about her new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behaviour, Health and Happiness. And Emily, we finished the first part reiterating the importance of um, accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to take us to to Phoenix and a housing development called First Place, um, which has particularly been developed for people on the autistic spectrum to live in. Tell me about that place. Yeah, well, so I, I guess I'll start with a caveat here, too, which is that there's no sort of one-size-fits-all design for autistic adults, just as there's no one-size-fits-all design for any of us. You know, everyone's different. But there are some general principles that designers have been thinking about when creating environments that are more accessible or welcoming or friendly to people who have autism or maybe other kinds of, of sensory needs. And a big one is thinking about sensory input. So, A lot of people with autism, though again, not everyone, are very sensitive to sensory stimuli. So loud noises or bright flashing lights can be really disruptive or even painful to some people. So at this apartment complex, that's something they took really seriously. They have a lot of soundproofing. They have very quiet appliances. They intentionally did not use any fluorescent lights, which can flicker and buzz. Um, And so those are the kinds of design decisions they were making in in this complex. I want to move us on to prisons, um, rather the other end of the spectrum. And well, we'll get to a actually much more humane prison in a moment. But first of all, let's talk about you talk about what solitary confinement does to to our minds. Yeah, solitary is one of the most damaging things that we can do to other human beings. Um, And I corresponded with a number of men who had been in solitary and in several cases, literally for years or for decades. You know, one man I corresponded with had been in solitary since 1997. And so that is, you know, 24 hours a day, essentially, sometimes 23, but day in, day out in a cell that is essentially the size of a parking lot with no human connection or stimulation. The effects are just devastating. You know, a lot of these men report you know, what is sometimes called irrational anger, though I think you could argue that it might be rational anger given their circumstance. Um, They report anxiety, intrusive thoughts, oversensitivity to stimuli. A large contingent, um, as many as 40% in some studies, develop outright delusions and hallucinations. And these effects, though sometimes they lessen when solitary is over, there can be lingering side effects for years after after people are released from solitary. So let's talk about Las Colinas, a place in California, um, which takes a very different approach. Yeah, so there has been a movement, what's sort of sometimes called the humane prison design movement, to create correctional facilities that are sort of more about rehabilitation and less about retribution. And this is an example that I had the chance to visit. Uh, It's a women's facility, um, and it's a jail, not a prison. But it's really interesting what they've done there. And it was actually designed by architects who had never designed a correctional facility before. What they specialized in was schools and colleges. And you can see that influence in the design. It is very much 
a campus. There are sort of dorms and then there are classroom buildings and a cafeteria that are sort of across this grassy quad that's been sort of painstakingly landscaped. And most of the women there who are classified as sort of a low security risk have freedom of movement so they can get up and go from their dormitory to the cafeteria. They can go outside and play volleyball. They can go to classes or the career center. And it's really, you know, there's still absolutely security there. And this is not these kinds of facilities sometimes get criticized as, oh, we're putting criminals or accused criminals in a country club. This is not a country club. It's not Lux, but it is a much more humane environment than sort of what you might typically think of as a jail. And there is certainly pushback, as you've said. I mean, we are at the moment as well, as you said, there's there is clearly a, you know, there's been a long time an ongoing movement about humane prisons. But right now we are in this, you know, this particular political moment. People are calling for defunding of, of police departments and, and thinking about, you know, much more humane ways of dealing with a load of the issues that police do. However, it remains the case that locking people up is a vote winner, isn't it? Yeah, though that may, as you point out, be changing. I mean, we are seeing this bipartisan, in, you know, in the U.S. at least, call for criminal justice reform. And I think part of that is because people have realized that locking a lot of people up for a long time is not just inhumane, but it's incredibly expensive. And so if the humane argument doesn't win you over, maybe the economic argument might. I guess I should say, too, though, that critics of the sort of quote-unquote humane prisons um, also come from the left as well as the right. And there are progressives who have said and say to me, like, we shouldn't be building more humane boxes to lock people up in. We should be locking up fewer people to begin with. And I mean, I, I completely agree with that. I do think we should be locking fewer people up, but I think we could also stand to rethink and re-envision the spaces that we are locking people up in. Now, as somebody who has studiously avoided owning any sort of Amazon Echo or Google Home type device, I waded into the next chapter in the book with sort of trepidation. And this is about the future of automated houses. Particularly interesting, though, is, is the idea of how an automated house can help the elderly and vulnerable. Tell us about some of those, some of the ways in which that is the case. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the early sort of smart home devices were focused on things like comfort and, you know, programming your shades and your thermostat. But we're now seeing more and more potential health applications, and a lot of them are being sort of piloted or pioneered in sort of the senior home, senior care space. So an obvious one and an application that's sort of I'd say farthest along is um, fall detection. Uh, so falls can be a real risk for seniors, especially when they live alone. They fall and spend hours on the floor, then the prognosis is generally not good. So there are different approaches to this. You know, I met some researchers who are working on sensors that go on the floor itself and can detect sort of changes in gait or potential falls. There are other researchers who have taken sort of a more camera-based approach where they sort of contract people's silhouettes and detect if someone 
falls. There are even researchers who have sort of fall detection robots that in theory at least can sort of wheel over to someone that's fallen and connect them with a loved one or with an emergency responder. So that's one area of, let's say, intense research and investment right now. Even in these areas, though, where we're we're sort of looking at useful ways, not just frivolous ways of using home automation, there are clearly still lots of issues, not least around privacy. Absolutely. And that's something these researchers have seen. So the camera-based systems just track silhouettes, like they're not taking images, other sorts of images of people. But still, some of the seniors that the researchers worked with said, you know, I don't want this in my bedroom or I don't want this in my bathroom and had concerns about privacy as, you know, I think, well, they should. There's the question of who sees the data and who has access to it. Um, And I think some of these questions become sort of especially sticky when you're talking about seniors who some of whom may have dementia, and then you get into questions of consent. And, you know, is this helpful? Or is this surveillance? It's a tricky area. There's a chapter in the book where you talk about um, ways to look into the future, ways to we can use the built environment to to help us deal with climate change, particularly with flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, I was particularly fascinated. I'd never come across the idea of the amphibious houses that you talk about before, and it just seems such a, an amazing, simple solution. Yeah, so it's definitely still still niche. It's not a widespread building style, but it's a fascinating idea. And there are different researchers who have developed different methods for making amphibious houses. But the general idea is that you're sort of turning a house into a pontoon raft. So you attach something buoyant, basically, to the foundation, like foam blocks or big empty water bottles. And then you strap or attach the house somehow to guidance posts or guidance poles that are sunk into the ground. And the idea then is if the area floods and water comes under the house, it raises the house up. The house remains sort of on the surface of the water because the foundation is buoyant. But because it's also fastened to these guidance posts, it doesn't float away. And as the water levels recede, the house sort of gently slides back down onto the same spot it was previously. You also I wanted to talk about the um because particularly when we go into the into the final chapter, the technique of the, the late Iranian architect Nada Khalili's um super adobe technique for building um very, very quick domed houses for you know, for, for cheapness, for disaster relief as well. Tell us something about this. Yeah, so this is a way of building that relies almost entirely on the literal earth beneath our feet. So the technique he came up with, he called super adobe. And essentially what you do is you fill sandbags or some sort of long bags with soil or earth or sand or whatever you happen to have available to you. And you arrange the bags in a large circle on the ground. And then you lay down a layer of barbed wire on top of the bags. And then you layer another circle of filled sandbags on top of that. And the barbed wire essentially acts as Velcro, sort of keeping the the two layers stuck together. And you keep layering up in this way until you have a completed dome, which you can then plaster over to make sort of a more permanent shelter or home. And as I said, in the last chapter, you basically extrapolate this out into techniques we could use if we decided to move to 
the moon or Mars or somewhere somewhere off Earth? How could we use the rock and you know the the actual landscape itself of of Mars as as a sort of shortcut to to building? I won't say habitable because <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> hell on Earth or hell on Mars to me, but to at least somewhere where we could survive. Yeah, and um, so Khalili actually developed this, first developed this technique of super dovi because he was explicitly thinking about what we might build on the moon. And the beauty of his idea is that you can use whatever you have. So you could take lunar regolith, which is the sort of combination of soil and rocks and debris on the moon's surface and make a super adobe dome. But there are lots of other ideas. So there's a lot of interest in inflatable structures because those are fairly cheap. And, you know, you could take it deflated on some sort of spacecraft. And when you get there, you just fill it with pressurized air and you have a shelter. Um, There's a lot of interest these days in 3D printing. And the ESA has actually done some interesting experiments with sort of simulated moon dust or Mars dust and, you know, making 3D printing blocks, which is another approach. Uh, There are people that are interested in, in making ice houses as well. So there are a lot of really interesting creative ideas out there. So I've been talking to Emily Anthes. We've been talking about her new book, The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behaviour, Health and Happiness, which is out in the US from Scientific American and FSG Books. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Of course, it was great to be here again. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.